Grab your Bible, if you would, and open it to Ephesians chapter 4, and we are going to continue this journey we've been on since the beginning of July through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and this is what we call an expository series. We do topical series, we do expository series. What expository series are about is walking through God's word verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, because God's agenda in your life and mine as we grow up in him is that we begin to receive his word more and more on its own terms. In other words, we don't go to God's word with our agenda. That's naturally what we do when we're young, when we're adolescent in our faith. But as we mature in our faith, we begin to go to God's word for his agenda, asking him to talk about what he knows to be most important, first and foremost in our lives. And it's important that we grow into the ability to do that. And we've been practicing that this summer with our our walk through Ephesians. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And um, let me begin by telling you something that you already know, and that is that kids say some hilarious things. Have you noticed that? Of course you have. Uh, Part of the fun of being a parent is some of the things your kids say. Raise your hand if you remember a moment when your kid said something you'll never forget. I mean, kids, grandkids, it happens all the time. Ron and I always remember one Sunday when we were leaving church in Idaho, the church we served there, and the morning had been busy. It was a summer morning. We got into the car. Isaiah was in his car seat in back, so I don't know, he's about three, and uh, Ron and I were in a great mood. It was a summer day, and we said to one another, hey, we should go get ice cream. Let's go buy Baskin Robbins on the way home from church. This will be awesome, and we're talking about it, and yeah, let's go do that, and and just offhand, uh, I turned around and said, hey, Isaiah, do you think we should go to ice cream? (laughs) And he had one of the best moments of his life. He looked at us, and he went, duh. (laughs) It was just... It couldn't have been perfect, and we lived that moment over and over. This week, I was thinking about that, and I came across a list of things kindergartners say to their teachers, and I thought I'd share a few of those with you. These are kindergartners, their first time in school, meeting teachers, the whole experience. One little girl was, was meeting her kindergarten teacher on her first day, and she looked up at her with her big blue eyes, and she said, you're kind of pretty for an old person. <laughs> you know, she's just being real. Another girl got a big hug from her teacher on her first day, and she said, I think I really like you, Mrs. Teacher. You smell like Las Vegas. Now, you figure, <laughs> figure out what that means. I'm not sure, but there it is. One kindergarten teacher was teaching her class about the four seasons of the year and how we tell them apart. And she said to the class, look out the window right now, kids. What season in it is it when the leaves are turning colors and falling from the trees? One little boy didn't miss a beat. He shot his hand up and said, deer season. <laughs> it's deer season when that happens. When a teacher said to a little girl, someday, honey, you'll have feelings for boys. The girl frowned. She said, I already have feelings for boys. They make me so mad. <laughs> yeah. When a little boy didn't earn a sticker because he didn't follow the rules, he folded his little arms and said to his teacher, when I grow up, I'll be a man and I'm going to buy stickers and not give you any. That's how it's going to be. One sweet little girl was staring at her teacher with such a serious look that her teacher asked her what she was thinking. And the girl said, her brow furrowed, did you put white highlights in your hair? (laughs) Being honest, 
I like this one. We're almost done. Another girl was drawing a picture with a determined look on her face. And so her teacher asked her what she was drawing. The little girl said, God. The teacher said, but honey, nobody knows what God looks like. The little girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs> they will in a minute. I'm going to show you. Just a couple more. Some of you have kids like that. But um, one teacher was teaching the kids about animals. And she said to the class, what does a cow say? Moo, moo. What does a pig say? Oink, oink. What does a mom say? No, no. Stop, right? <laughs> Cute. Last one. One uh, kindergarten teacher had two little boys of her own. Ben, age five, and Brian, age three. And as it turned out, Ben was in her kindergarten class. And as it also turned out, mom had just found out she was pregnant. And so in a quiet moment, she pulled Ben close and said, Honey, how would you like to have a new little brother? Ben thought about it for a long time. And then he sighed and said, No, let's just keep Brian. You know, let's <laughs> just keep him. Which I get a kick out of. You know, I'm going somewhere with all this. You know that by now. Um, you know, when I was a boy, like when you were a boy or a girl, when you were small, all you could think about was what you wanted. But as we grow up, we become more and more aware of what others want. And the more we enter into that, the more we discover the joy God intends for us. When I became a husband, I discovered that there is a greater joy in pleasing my wife than in pleasing myself. There's greater physical security in that as well, but that's not my point this morning. There really is a greater joy in pleasing your spouse. And, and that was not something I would have guessed when I was young. God wants you and I to understand that we will find a greater joy in pleasing him than in pleasing each other. And pleasing him revolves around one thing in particular. And that's our point this morning. Friends, understand that our father, your dad, wants you to live a life of mature devotion to his church, to the local body, which is an expression of his big worldwide family. He wants you and I to live a mature devotion to whatever local church we call home. You know, we've been learning through Ephesians uh, a whole bunch of stuff. In week one, we learned that invisible realities are greater than visible ones, and so God wants us in touch with them. Week two, we heard Paul call us to watch what God does for us, not just with our mind, but with the eyes of our heart, to understand who he is by what he does for us. In week three, we learned about how God wants us to live beyond our programming, our sinful nature, that he calls us to do that by the power of his spirit. In week four, we learned that Jesus wants to set us free from superstition to get us beyond those internet ideas about God that are floating around out there. And then in week five, we learned that God wants us to approach him with freedom and confidence, to draw near to him boldly, like, like my son is willing to interrupt me on sermon day. This morning, God wants to talk to us about 
that mature devotion to his church that he seeks for us. Because as we do, we discover a far greater joy than we thought we could know or even want. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Let's listen to what the Bible says to us. Paul's writing and he says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, remember he's writing from prison. It's remarkable and amazing and how full of joy he is in both Ephesians and Philippians as he writes from prison. He's in touch with an invisible reality. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We talked about that calling the last few weeks. Be completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. We're going to read down through verse 16 this morning, but let's pause for a moment and just take in what we just heard. Paul says, I urge you, Greg, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What does that mean? Well, let's take a moment to talk about what it doesn't mean. Some, some think that living a life worthy of the calling we have received means validating God's faith in us. Kind of like a football player who gets drafted in the first round and then sets out to prove that he's a first rounder. But friends, that's a misunderstanding. You, you want to know that God has no faith in this sense in you and me. He knows who we are. He sees us right to the core. We are saved by his grace, not by his belief in us. And, and trying to prove that you are worthy of grace is not the Christian way. In fact, as the apostle is at pains to teach us in Galatians, it will lead you away from him into legalism and pride and a focus on yourself instead of on Christ. In fact, it will lead you to despair in the end and very far away from Jesus. Now, a life worthy of the calling we have received doesn't mean validating God's faith in us. I love the story, I think I've shared it before, of Alex Haley, the author of Roots, who kept on his desk a picture that a reporter noticed and asked him about. The picture was of a turtle set up on a fence post on his Montana ranch where he lived. And the reporter said, what's that photo about? And Mr. Haley said, oh, I keep that on my desk to remind me of the grace I've received through my faith in Jesus. The reporter said, how does that work? And Mr. Haley chuckled and he said, look, that's a turtle on a fence post. To ask yourself how he got there, <laughs> he can get there on his own. Somebody put him there. And in the same way, a life worthy of the calling doesn't mean validating God's faith in us. Some people think that it means never failing or struggling again and, and living a life of endless success. But, but the Bible defines righteousness a little differently. Proverbs tells us, for example, in chapter 24, verse 16, that though a righteous man falls seven times, he will get up again. In other words, the evidence of righteousness is not that you never fall, but that you keep getting up because you believe in the grace of him who has called you. To put it another way, a righteous man or woman believes in God's grace more than their own struggles. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, only let us live up to what we've already attained. 
A life worthy of the calling you have received doesn't mean never struggling. Some think it means making up for all your mistakes, but church, the reality is that sins can't be undone. They can only be forgiven. A person falls into temptation, drives drunk, and injures or takes the life of another person. Grace doesn't undo that. It forgives us for it. And the reality is that a life worthy of the calling we have received is not where we make up for our mistakes. We can't. It's bigger and deeper than that. So then what is a life worthy of the calling we have received? Well, Paul immediately tells us in the following verses. He begins in verse 2. Look at what he says. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then he describes it. He says, be completely humble and gentle bearing with one another in love. Uh, Let's sit down on that for a moment. Humble means you and me ditch our silly make-believe efforts to prove we're worthy and instead receive God's love and grace as the gift it is. Receive it in the spirit it is given as a gift. USA Today carried an article in June of 2002 about a man named Robert Kirkpatrick, who at that time was a prisoner in the Belmont Correctional Institute in Ohio. He was serving three years for dealing drugs. But somehow, he received a formal letter from the White House inviting him to dinner with President Bush in Washington, D.C., Reporter found out about it and interviewed him. How did you respond? The reporter asked. Mr. Kirkpatrick shrugged. He said, I I wrote back and said I'd be happy to come, but he's going to have to pull some strings to get me there. That's a man who understands that the gift that he seeks to receive depends entirely on the person giving it. That's what it means to be humble. Mr. Kirkpatrick has no illusions about his situation. The challenge that we have to ask ourselves is, do we have illusions about our situation? I I can't tell you how often folks well-meaning will say to me, Pastor Greg, I think I'm a good person. Church, the Bible says you aren't. The Bible says I'm not. The Bible says we have deep, deep flaws. As a matter of fact, if you read that little section in Romans chapter 2 where Paul describes the condition of the heart, boy, that'll humble you. And it says that's the truth about me. And the sooner I begin to own that, the sooner I become capable of being humble. Until we own it, we can't because we're spending so much time defending ourselves. The truth is that we are sinners saved by grace, and that's where humility comes from. Paul says, be completely humble in light of that fact. And then he goes on and he says, not only let that humble you, but let it make you gentle. What he means in this moment is the, the kind of gentleness that lets other people off the hook. You know, that's what Ben did with Brian. (laughs) He let his little brother off the hook. He knew what a pain he was, but he said, no, let's just keep him. Now, what was happening in his heart in that moment? You understand as an adult, as a parent, you understand that, that he was feeling, he was owning, that his brother was part of his family, that his brother 
is meant to hold a, a permanent place in his heart. And so he said, no, let's keep him. The scripture is calling us to have that spirit towards one another. And Paul amplifies that by saying, not only be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. What does that mean? It means to keep letting people off the hook, to do it more than once or twice or three times. It means to understand that the only thing that can make unworthy people worthy of grace is to give them the grace while they're still unworthy. That's the only thing that has the power to bring about the transformation. That's what God does for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You know, the Bible tells us that Peter, you know this, came to Jesus one day and he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered and said, I tell you, Peter, not, not seven times, but 77 times. There's a little background, seven being the number of completion. What Jesus is saying is, do it as many times as you need to. Just keep doing it forever. What a high calling. But when we're humble and gentle... It's a calling we can enter into. When we are patiently devoted to one another, it's a calling we are capable of. And, and God is telling us that that is a life worthy of the calling we have received. Lots of people have illusions about what it means to live a life worthy. God tells us that this is the meaning. You know, to kind of put, a, put it another way, kind of a contemporary way, God wants us to think of the church as beta software. You know what beta software is, right? It's not finished yet. It's not completed. It's in a pre-mode, 0 0.5, 0 0.8, 0 0.9. It hasn't reached 1.0. It's not ready for release yet. When you use beta software, you know that parts of it probably don't work the way they should. You actually understand that. And you don't enter into a beta, if you know anything about software programs, you don't begin to use or participate in a beta without the understanding that stuff probably isn't all going to work the way that it should. Those of us who are computer gamers know about entering into a computer game in what's called early access. It's the same thing. It's not done yet. And you're going to help it get done by your participation and your feedback. God invites us to think of the church like that, to be humble and gentle, bearing with one another patiently because we know that by so doing, we participate in the finished product. Now, Paul wants us to be that way about the church universal. That's why in verses four to six, he says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one in God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what does that mean? That means we don't only have this spirit, this attitude, towards the folks that we attend our local church with, but to all his churches in all their various flavors, to that great big tent that is the family of God that has different styles and different traditions and, and sometimes different priorities that we embrace one another. We embrace our Catholic brothers because at its core, the Catholic church is a Christian church. We embrace our Baptist, Presbyterian, Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters, on and on and on I could go, Lutherans, you name it. We embrace them because they are us. And there is never between churches any thought of any kind of competition because we're too busy patiently bearing with one another in love, recognizing that we're all in beta. But that love for the church universal becomes local and practical through our devotion to our local church. Through that, 
there is created in us the kind of joy that lives in a good marriage between a man and a woman who discover the joy of being devoted to one another. Let me talk about that for a moment. Many people will never know the joy of being a mature and grown-up follower of Christ because they'll never be patient enough to bear with the family of a local church. Instead, they'll swap churches like, like some people swap spouses, never discovering what love really is because they're not humble and gentle enough to persevere with the imperfect people around us. And so, God calls us to a devotion like that so that we can discover love, so that we can discover the joy that goes with real love. Pastor Sam Wiggins of Texas tells about a, a seasoned older woman in the very first church that he served as a young pastor. And on his first Sunday after church, she came up and looked him over. And she shook her head and she said, well, pastor, I'm glad Jesus called me to love his church because otherwise I don't think I could be your friend. But since he did, she patted him on the arm. I'm sure we'll figure it out somehow. You know what that is? That's real. That's a devotion she, that she understood her God to be calling her to. Church history is, is rich with this theme, with this idea. St. Cyprian, 1,800 years ago, said, he who would have God for his father must also take the church for his mother, recognizing the calling that God has given to us as believers. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 that reminds us, anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he's not seen. And so he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, church, we get to know God through the demands of being patient and graceful and bearing with one another in love over time. That's how we get to know him. And so God calls us to that kind of rugged family discipline. When I was in the Marines, they taught us that we would never be able to defeat our enemies until we took responsibility for each other. And so when we were in infantry school, if, if nine of us in a 10-man unit succeeded at a mission, but the 10th man didn't, then the whole unit failed and that at first was incredibly frustrating, but it also brought about a change in the way we thought and acted until pretty soon we became a, a, a group of, of people constantly thinking about each other and constantly making sure that each other succeeded. And in the process, we became a first-class fighting team, something like that is what God seeks to do in my life, in your life, and in our life together. And this idea of being blessed through one another is further expressed in verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians chapter 4. Look at your Bible. Paul says, following this thought, he says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, this could get a little confusing here unless you understand what Paul's doing. In this moment, he's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18, but he's quoting it as an illustration, as a word picture. You see, in those days, when a king victoriously defeated his enemies, he would return home and there would be a parade. 
And part of what would happen at that parade is the king would give gifts to his people, gifts to celebrate his victory over his enemies. Paul is saying that God does that in our midst. He gives us gifts to celebrate his victory. And those gifts are further described in verses 11 and following. We're going to get there in just a moment, but in simple it means he gives us the gift of one another. Let me say that again. He gives us, he seeks to give us the gift of one another. I I have a saying, maybe you've heard me say it before, it says, I, not the Lord, but it reflects this idea, and that is that the greatest gift God has to give you after he gives you his grace is each other. He wants to give you the people around you who share your faith as a gift. And to be open to receiving that is to experience his gift. Now, we're going to see what he means specifically in verse 11, but Paul, having brought up that word picture of the king returning and give gifts, he jumps into a little parenthesis in verses 9 and 10. Let me help you grasp it. He writes, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He's thinking of what he just quoted in Psalm 68. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now really all Paul's doing is he's pausing for a moment and he's saying, remember, Jesus came down from heaven and returned to heaven. In Jesus, we're not just seeing a great prophet or a great teacher. We're seeing God himself come to earth and return to earth. These two verses are a reminder that Jesus is God in human flesh, a reminder of what we call the deity of Christ. That's so important for us to understand because only when we own that, only when we grasp that, will we let him have the kind of authority to change our minds that he seeks to give us. Only when we recognize that this is the Son of God, God the Son, Can we open our hearts enough to let him completely change our minds? And so Paul makes reference to that. It's a parenthesis. So verses 9 and 10 are a parenthesis. Verses 7 and 8 lead directly into verse 11, where Paul wants to talk about these gifts that our victorious king has given us. And his point is that Jesus gives us one another to help us learn and grow up in God. This happens as we practice the communal grace of being humble and patient and bearing with one another. But look at how he describes it very specifically in verses 9 and following. He says that that we receive the gift God wants to give when we own our leaders and our colleagues in faith, our brothers and sisters, as the gifts that they are. So Paul says, it was he who gave some to be apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And and the implication is all the other gifts that are distributed among believers for the church's sake. It was he who did this in order to prepare God's people, that's you and I, for works of service so that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, God gives us one another so that we can discover the joy and freedom of maturity, so that we can know him fully. There are those of us like me when I began my journey as a believer who thought of growing up in God as just learning my Bible. That is certainly a critical, non-negotiable component. But what I very quickly began to learn was that growing up in my faith also meant allowing my fellow believers to speak into my life, allowing them to be examples and role models, sometimes allowing them to correct me, sometimes allowing them to challenge me, always understanding that God is at work 
in them and in me. That he is at work in me through them. This is adult stuff we're talking about this morning, but this is what your father wants you to understand about your church. That he has distributed the people he has distributed in your church from the leaders all the way to every servant in order to grow you up in the knowledge of him. And the sooner you know that, the sooner you get to know him better. Over in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says this, that each of us should use whatever gifts we have received to serve one another, faithfully thereby administering God's grace in its various forms. In other words, as we serve with whatever giftedness we have, as we serve together in his church, other people experience God. We talk about this in disciple membership class uh, every fall and every spring. And we illustrate it by saying, you know, the worship team gets up here and, and they lead us in worship. Pastor Wes sings and the team backs him up. And, and we experience God in the midst of our worship. And, and if we're ignorant and foolish, we will think that that is because all of the people on the platform are so amazingly spiritual. But that idea will run out the door as soon as you get to know them. <laughs> because, you know, they're just like you and me. But when they use their giftedness, we experience God. And what God wants us to understand here is that when we allow one another into our lives, we also experience God. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and we're running out of time this morning. He said, God shows much more of himself to some people than others, not because he has favorites, but because it's impossible for a man whose mind and character are in the wrong condition to see him clearly. Just as sunlight, which has no favorites, cannot be reflected in a dusty mirror as well as a clean one. So God shows himself as he fully is to people united together into a body, loving one another and helping one another. For God meant humanity to be like musicians in one band or organs in one body. And because of this, the only really adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community living together. A man who tries to know God without the church is like a fellow with no tools but an old pair of binoculars setting out to correct the astronomers. He may be a clever chap, but he's not giving himself a chance. You see, the reality is that we grow by this devotion to his church every bit as much as we grow by reading his word or worship or prayer or serving. Pastor Josh and Nicole are going to get married in a few weeks. The countdown is on. They're just about four weeks away from their wedding. What would you think if Pastor Josh came up to you after church today and said, man, I've been studying up on this marriage thing and I have got it all figured out. I read all the books. I understand marriage completely. I've memorized the romantic songs. I'm excited and I know there won't be any surprises because I'm good to go. <laughs> You'd say, oh, Pastor Josh, you're such a cute idiot, you know. <laughs> because you know, by the way, he hasn't said that, but you know that it is only the experience that starts on the wedding day that is really going to teach him about marriage, amen? It's only the living, and the same thing for Nicole, vice versa. You get the idea. Well, sometimes we take the same nonsensical approach to our participation in his church. Oh, God, I just want to learn stuff get into worship, but you know, I don't want to be involved with other people. I don't want to let them into my... Well, you can't 
grow up in him without that. And so God calls us to it. All right, let's finish. Finally, the last thing Paul's going to do is to say that, that the consequence of this kind of choice, of this kind of lifestyle, is a calm and steady consistency. That that's the reward of this attitude. And that's crucial because, church, hear me, we're almost done. That is what young believers most desperately need from their church, is the calm parental consistency of those of us who have grown up in him. Dana Van Scoy of Oxnard, California writes, when our son graduated from the eighth grade, I knew I had to talk to him about high school because it was coming. He was the first of our kids to enter high school. So at the end of August, I sat down and I talked him through all the tips I could think of, all the challenges and temptations and struggles that go with being in high school. And I poured my heart out and I hoped our little session made an impression on him. It turns out it did. Because later that night, I heard him tell his dad, well, dad, I'm ready for high school, but I don't think mom is. <laughs> right? Right? Be because the sign that you're ready is the calm consistent lack of fear. That's what spiritual maturity is. That's what comes from choosing to live a life of mature devotion to your church. Excitement in our faith, it's real, but it's not the point. God defines the goal of growing up through church very specifically. Look at the last part of our passage, verses 14 to 16. He says, if we live this way, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming on TBN and the internet. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. That's what young believers desperately need from us to be that kind of steady parental presence. When I was a new believer, when my wife and I came to Christ, 20 years old, newly married, and we started going to church, we desperately needed that community of believers to do everything they did, which was live out their faith in front of us and do that in a steady and consistent way so that we could grow up. That's what God seeks in us. Everybody, including the cameras, loves at football time to watch the quarterbacks and the wide receivers. They're the ones most likely to be on the replays and in the pictures, in the paper, on the you know, internet the next day. But if you know football, you stop watching the quarterbacks and wide receivers. If you understand how the game works, your eyes are riveted on one part of the field every play. And that's where those linemen are mashing each other. Because it's the hogs who are determining who wins and who loses. And if you don't have hogs, you're toast. In the same way, God wants us to realize that it is the steady and consistent among us that he can use most profoundly in our world. Hogs know how to play for the team. They are more we than me, and that's what God seeks in us. In December of 2012, a Spanish long-distance runner named Ivan Anaya was running second place behind a Kenyan Olympic medalist named Abel Mutai, at an international race outside of Madrid. As they entered the last mile, Mutai, the leader, suddenly stopped, thinking that he had already crossed the finish line. 
Aniah, who was in second place, caught him in just a few minutes. But instead of racing past him, knowing the finish line was still a mile ahead, he stopped and he waited and he redirected Mutai, explaining to him that the finish line was still a mile ahead. As a consequence, he came in second. Mutai won the race. Afterwards, a reporter approached Ivan and said, what are you doing? Why did you do that? His coach was angry with him. But Ivan explained, he said, you know, he was winning before he got confused. I wouldn't have caught him. And you know, life is more than just winning races. We share a love of running. That's what matters. You know what that is? That's a grown-up. That's a mature human being. And that's what a mature believer looks like, devoted to her local church because she understands that that is a life worthy of the calling she has received. So let me invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me for a moment here as we conclude our time together. Let me ask you, have you chosen to be completely humble and gentle with your fellow believers? Have you decided to be relentlessly patient, bearing with them in love, come what may? Do you think of yourself as more we than I? This is what your father calls you to, and he calls you to it because he knows that you will find a deeper and greater joy in this kind of other-centeredness than you will ever find in merely seeking blessing for yourself. And so your dad invites you into a mature devotion to his body so that you can discover his joy. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. Gosh, this is grown-up adult stuff we talked about this morning. As we go from here, help us to hear your spirit calling us to this kind of joy. We pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?